Hello, and welcome to the Kidney Cast. I'm Laura Morris. And I'm Ari Deckard. This is our podcast where I interview Ari about his experiences with Alport syndrome, his three kidney transplants, and all of his related health and medical experiences. Last week, we talked about how Ari's illness and other factors affected our decision not to have kids. Mm -hmm. And this week, because I think we're getting close to the end of the run of this podcast, we're almost caught up health stories wise (laughs) to now in time. There Uh are a few more interesting things that happen post third transplant. Right. The the next several episodes, we're kind of just going to focus on some isolated issues that are out of time, out of that linear storytelling mode. Yeah, sort of across the whole everything. Right. And so this time, the thing that we wanted to talk about was the issue of coping. Yeah. And of course, we've talked about this as it relates to specific incidences in the stories we've been telling, mm-hmm. how we coped, what this was about. You know, it hasn't been absent, but it also has not been the specific star of the show in any episodes we've done. Right. So this is a whole episode to talk about, I guess, coping strategies, challenges, mm-hmm. how you deal with chronic illness, and I guess transplants and your stuff in particular, but disability right. and coping. So I'm going to start and open with the broadest possible question, and you can take this anywhere you want. Okay. How do you cope with all this? What strategies do you use when things are hard? Well, (laughs) you did promise it would be broad. I think there are several main categories of coping. One is like leaning on other people, and the other is what do you do yourself? So I guess that's two. Within the other people category, there's like, I guess, three main (laughs) categories I'm thinking of. One is professionals. One is people who are close to you. And the third one is everybody else that you know, or maybe, maybe that you just encounter. So I'll talk about other people first, I guess, before we talk about me or one person. Um, I think this is great. This is your taxonomy right. of coping strategies. <laughs> the coping taxonomy. <laughs> it's like Maslow's Triangle of Needs and Ari's taxonomy of coping. So other people. I think we've talked a couple of times about how I have sought professional help. There were three main times I think that that happened in high school as my health started to worsen and worsen, and we did not really know exactly what it was. We suspected, hey, maybe this is Alport syndrome. And most of our doctors were like, yeah, but it can't be, can it? And I saw several people during that time. Sometimes it was a little bit more focused on issues that like, my parents and I were having, um, because we were all sort of frustrated with with how the situation was going and with the fact I wasn't in school and kind of then that ended up with us being really frustrated with each other and not really having the tools to communicate about that. So we had we had a professional, a, a therapist, and in some cases, a, I guess, a family therapist to kind of help us gain some tools and vocabulary about that. And Yeah, your parents talked a bit about this in the episode where they were our special guests, (laughs) but this can really wreak havoc in tight relationships, The how chronic illness is really hard, and even on people who are really close, and they all want to work together. They all want the same thing. They want you to feel better. They want things to be going better. Yeah. 
that it can still cause a lot of tension and heartache between the people in those close-knit relationships. Yeah, it really can. And I, I think that the reason I'm talking about professional help here first is because professionals who have had training and especially experience are actually people who are likely to have, like I said, vocabulary and tools for coping or just for communication that the average person is not likely to just come equipped with. Because, you know, we've spent nearly, what, 24 hours at this point talking about the history of my disease. And now, when I'm almost 40, I feel like I have a fair number of tools, a lot of vocabulary to discuss not just the medical issues, but also the emotional side effects of all of those things and how they impact me and people around me. And that's because chronic disease is rare. My specific disease is incredibly rare. And so it's not like I can go, well, you know, I've seen 14 movies where this happens and they discuss it intimately, or this is the subject of things we talked about my junior year in high school. It doesn't come up in health class, you know, when you're talking about how to mediate peer conflicts or say no to drugs um, <laughs> or even like use a condom or where you would or wouldn't make these decisions or those decisions. It's not the kind of thing that comes up in our sort of standard education, whether it's actual academic or cultural education. And so when you start to encounter that stuff, you're like the only person in the world who's ever had to deal with that, sort of. Even in, with That the, you know. Right, that I know, exactly. But that's how it feels, especially as a kid. But it can feel that way as an adult. Even with a genetic disorder like this, I think that now, especially with organizations like the Alport Syndrome Foundation, more people are able to talk about it a little bit. Hopefully with a podcast like this, more people have a sense that there are other people. But the people who do have that vocabulary, who do have that understanding, that experience, are people who see lots of those people, people who have trained and, like I said, um, experienced those things, can actually help us out. So in high school, I saw several people. I, I ended up seeing one person on my own, I think for about a year. And I found that really helpful. And honestly, I think, you know, I'm talking about this in a specific way about for this issue. And I think that's a very valid, reasonable use of therapy. But I kind of wish, along with my wish for universal health care, that what that included was that everybody had access to, and in addition to having like a yearly physical checkup had like a monthly emotional health checkup with somebody that they could develop a relationship with. I think that would help us all out. Right. I don't have a genetic <laughs> disease and I have been helped yeah. by professional licensed therapists. It's I think that it has less stigma than it used to. Yeah. But I still, you know, I want to say it's a great thing to do. Mm -hmm. And even if you think your stuff isn't that big a deal, right? You and I on the podcast, we're talking about your illness, which is sometimes life-threatening, which can right. be debilitating. And I think other people might think, oh, well, I don't have anything as big as that. Or I don't have a family member who died. I don't have some big serious thing. But that doesn't mean you can't benefit from talking to somebody. Yeah, I I feel like the stigma is lessening so that now it's like, well, you go to a doctor when you have an injury or an illness. And if you're having like some kind of emotional issue, you go to a therapist. And I think that's progress. But 
you know, honestly, you should go to a doctor even if you don't have an immediate issue just so that you're maintaining care and good health. And the same is true for emotional health. So not surprisingly, I've gotten a bit far afield. High school, I saw some people there. Then also, as previously discussed, I saw a counselor for a year or two after my first transplant failed. And I found that, again, very, very helpful and useful just to kind of have somebody to check in with and talk about and discuss some of the feelings in general that I had about my health and what was going on with it and um, and everything else that was going on in my life and how that impacted it. And then while I was at City College post-third transplant, I also saw somebody, again, for a little bit over a year. You know, again, found that super, super useful. And the reason that a professional I find to be useful, in addition to all the vocabulary and strategies that they may have because they are professionals, <laughs> is that uh, they're independent of your the rest of your network. And confidential, which we sometimes ignore, but like is a really important thing. They're, they're a person who is completely separate from anybody else that you know. And even if they weren't, they're like ethically prohibited from telling anybody else or even anybody else you don't know really that they just are there to listen reflect things back perhaps suggest strategies and things like that but it's almost like some people journal you know some people do that kind of thing and that's never been my thing but it's just your private little i need to talk about this place that you can go yeah i think we're going to talk about the benefits of talking to your own network a little bit later but I would say the strength of talking to people you know and love and care about is that they care about you. But yeah. that's also sometimes the peril, mm -hmm. right? They care about you. If you say, I'm having a really hard time because my doctor told me I need to get a test in a month, it might be cancerous. Right. Maybe you're not ready to tell somebody who loves you that just yet with the amount of information you have because mm. that's going to scare them too. Right. Then it's, they're dealing with a thing. Right. They're not just a blank wall. You can through all your stress and anxiety into, there's somebody who's going to worry about you. Right. And a professional can be more blank. They're not somebody that you also feel the need to take care of about your own scary thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's really, really valuable. So I, I don't know what else I really want to say about um, professional help, except it's great. I wish it were more easily, readily, cheaply available to more people more often for everything. But um, it's something that I strongly recommend, not always necessarily, but sometimes when you have something serious like chronic illness. It's one of the reasons that I guess in general, I'm glad we're talking about this as a whole episode because you know the medical stuff is hard enough. Just going, oh my goodness, I am in pain now, or I'm having this procedure and it does this to my body. And we sometimes it's easy to sort of ignore or downplay the emotional aspect of it, which is actually sometimes bigger and more ongoing than the physical aspects of things. When you're on dialysis, it just sort of is a low-grade or medium-grade, not great physical feeling, and it's constant and regular, and that's not great. But emotionally, it's tough because day in and day out, you have this medium-grade bad physical sensation or sensations all the time and you're unable to do what you want to do and 
all of the things that we've talked about. And, you know, we're human beings who have feelings about that. So seeing a professional, A plus would recommend, go do it, I say. The next thing you talked about was relying on people you know, your own family, friends, network. Yeah. So this is obviously, you know, it has its own set of complications, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you want to have, I think, a support network. And it's definitely a thing. I think I mentioned this somewhat recently that doctors will ask you about. Medical professionals will say, so who's your support network? And sometimes what they mean is who can give you a ride, you know, or make sure that you don't pass out after surgery or something. But they also mean who can you rely on to say, they're there, you're okay, poor little bunny, and mean it and provide real emotional support for you. And I, I will say that I've been very lucky to have um, the parents and family that I have, to have you, people who really love and care about me and make that known to me regularly and who show me that they love me not just by saying, hey, love you, love you, love you, but also say like, I love you, so get your button gear. You know, you're taking it too easy on yourself right now and you can do better than this. That's important. Um, you know, and th that for the support people, that's a hard line to walk. That's very difficult. Uh, I know it is, but I'm really fortunate that I have those people, that I have you, that I have my parents, I have my family, um, and that I have close friends, that I've had other close relationships in my life who sometimes have done the physical work of, like, in some cases, actually saving my life, getting me to a hospital when I needed to or something like that. But sometimes they're just there to listen. Sometimes they're there to be like, hey, you're pretty cool. Right on you. And this is another aspect that bleeds into the third category of other people I mentioned, which is just to be normal with. When you have chronic illness, when you're weird, it's nice to just be normal. And, you know, that's a thing that I think you see in all these inspirational videos about kids. Oh, I just really wanted a chance to just be a kid and we have this opportunity so they can just be kids themselves. And there's, um, I sound like I'm making fun of it. I'm, I'm actually not. And it's not just kids that need that. Um, I needed that when I was a kid. I needed it when I was a teenager. I needed that when I was, um, in my twenties and I still need it now. You know, I need to just go and be a person with people. You saying this made me think about the first year we were in New York and Tara lived here. Okay. And we talked about how amazing Tara was yeah. when you got your transplant and how she really came through and helped us both emotionally through that really tumultuous time, helped me when I was taking tests. She was there with you at the hospital, like yeah. did a lot of work. But if I were going to talk about the amazing ways Tara has been supportive of us when you were sick, mm -hmm. the main thing that I think about is... You being on dialysis in our first apartment and her coming over and hanging out and we just watch kind of dumb TV on the DVR while you were plugged into the machine mm -hmm. and we were people hanging out. Right. And it wasn't, oh, it's this depressing procedure we do every day where we plug Ari in and he gets more and more tired and the machine cleans his blood. And yeah. That it became, oh, this is our normal TV hangout time. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. the, that aspect of the friendship made this pretty big emotional toll, this big thing we had to do, this heavy kind of daily weight, mm -hmm. feel like it wasn't there. Yeah. 
And there have been a lot of other friends, too, who have done things like that, where it isn't just about, oh, you poor thing, this is so terrible, but who have just been normal with Mm -hmm. you and I. People who have come to the hospital and just been normal. Right. Not, oh, this is so scary. Tell me everything. What did the doctor just say? But like, hey, I brought some playing cards. Yeah. Let's just do this. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, so in summary, everybody should have a Terra. Um, Everyone should. (laughs) Everyone should. And I think a lot of people do, you know, with they're different people, but a lot of people do. So, yeah, that that normalcy and that ability to just be normal is really nice. But the other thing there, too, is that if it's all just normalcy, then that sometimes starts to feel like, oh, they don't want to hear about this other thing that's going on with me. And I am definitely... I know I say this and then I'm on this podcast doing this thing, but uh, I am definitely not the kind of person who wants to like spend hours talking about my disease in general. <laughs> right. Here we are at hour 25 saying, we find it kind of hard to talk about this stuff. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> this, Which ironically is true. It's true. It, uh, this was an exercise in sort of forcing ourselves to do so. But the fact is that sometimes you do need to talk about it. Sometimes it's stressful or scary or something specific is going on. Or just, it's the thing going on in your life. It's not like, oh my goodness, I went on this neat date, or I just had this cool experience. Like, this is the significant thing that happened that week when you're catching up with somebody. And it needs to be okay also that you can say, I got some labs back, and they just weren't great, and I'm a little bit nervous about it, and now we're going to do this, this, and this. And you can have a friend who can be open to that too. It can't always be like, no, we were playing cards. You know, like, that's <laughs> that's not great either. And again, I've been pretty fortunate in having a lot of people that I can do that with. And I I would also add, this came up a few months ago, I think, where one of the emails we got was from um, people that I had gone to college with. And I've gotten several emails like this where people say, you know, you could have asked more of us. Um, You could have opened up more. And I will admit that's a scary, awkward thing. You know, I, I was glad to know that now. I think I even knew that then, but I was afraid. I don't want to ask more than people are willing or able or comfortable giving. And knowing where that line is is really difficult. Sometimes you you go, you guys, or you're afraid anyway, that you will go, okay, you guys, listen, um, I was just in the hospital and this happened and this other thing happened. And wow, that was really intense. And they're like, Okay, that's nice. So you will never believe this cute guy that I was talking to. <laughs> and then you're sitting there going like, well, I want to hear about the cute guy, but um, I was trying to tell you something really serious about me, and it makes me feel, you know, <laughs> as my kids would say, a certain kind of way. And that's not that's not a good feeling, and so you're afraid of that, and so sometimes you don't share. And sometimes you don't share because it's too much You know, because you want to just be normal and you just want to do those things. I was thinking, too, it's about sometimes having somebody really know you and you know them, right? So they know Mm -hmm. that you don't want to burden them. And so they sometimes know to push you for information. Right. And you sometimes know that it's okay to push information out yourself. Yeah. It's kind of, you get over that, like, oh, is this going to be a bummer? Or am I just going to bum them out? (laughs) Right. No one wants to be a bummer. No one wants to be that person. And when you're the person with this disease that just is a bummer, there's nothing cool about Alport syndrome. Like, 
I guess I could say, well, ooh, I'm a cyborg. I wear hearing aids. It's not that cool. I wish it were cool. There's some things that are cool about it. But even though I can automatically connect to my cell phone, like by Bluetooth with my hearing aids, which is really cool, I still don't hear as well as the average person. That would be nice. <laughs> Maybe if I could hear better than the average person, that would be really cool. But I can't. And... um that's that sort of the thing that like well i don't and uh you know i had to be on dialysis or i had to have a transplant or i get sick easily or i can't eat these foods with you or that list goes on and on well that's an easy segue into challenges because there's the other side of the coin of having people you care about which is what i mentioned earlier that sometimes you just aren't ready to give somebody whose feelings you care about the burden of we're going to wait a month for a test to come back. It might be really bad. Right. Because you're promising them that you're going to get back to them when you know. Yeah. You're not just going to say, here's this terrifying thing and keep them in suspense forever. So it's a little bit, you're giving yourself a job. Mm -hmm. And maybe this is a thing I think about more because I'm the partner or the support person. Right. But if I'm already expending a lot of emotional energy supporting you, mm -hmm. I kind of, it's like my lifeboat is only so big, I can't take on another person. Yeah. And so sometimes the idea like, oh, a friend could really be helpful, but in some ways then, oh, well, they're also in my boat too. I've got to make sure yeah. they like get back to them and let them know what's, what's the update. What did the doctor just say? And that can be really exhausting. Yeah. That sometimes it's easier to fall back on going it alone because then you don't have to take care of other people. You don't have to be sure... You're updating everyone and keeping track of your phone tree. And who did I tell about this scary thing? So now I can tell them it's okay. Or if it's not okay, then now I have to call and tell them the bad thing. Right. And be a bearer of bad news to everyone I worried to about this. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it is a two-way street sometimes in that way. So then I guess returning to um, Ari's taxonomy of coping... <laughs> The other big category that I talked about the was... The other branch. That's right. The other branch is is personal because um, it's really great to have other people, but in the end, um, this is going to sound very therapy-based, I suppose, you have to do the work yourself. Um, and, and that's really true. So I have several strategies that I think I use, and this is a sort of a difficult thing where like, I guess I'm recommending this, but personal coping is the kind of thing that you've really got to navigate for yourself. Um, in the end, you got to figure out what it is that works for you. But I will say that for me, one of the biggest strategies that I pursue and have pursued forever is sort of um, micro to macro thinking. And this is a thing that I learned and developed, but also already had to a certain extent that I use a lot as a musician in terms of practicing and things. But as a coping strategy, what I mean is when you get news like you need to start on dialysis or, hey, this former transplant you had is turning into this giant tumor that we're going to need to remove and it might start pressing on your spine. So that's important. Or... um your transplant is failing or you need or you need a transplant or you're going to get a new transplant today that is giant macro news that is life altering that comes with it a host of tons of things 
Uh, and it's really easy to start thinking all the way forward. Like, well, this means um, I need to, I don't know, drop out of school? Do I? I don't know. Do I need to move? Um, am I going to have to start taking meds? Are my meds going to change? How is this going to affect my relationship? How is this going to affect my career? How is this going to affect a whole host of everything? Right, all the million little and medium things. Yeah, and and there's a lot of them. And some of them are just really big things. And there's a lot of them. And so focusing on then down to the micro, the smallest parts is what actually makes things work. In a certain way, I'm saying just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Well, explain more what you mean focusing on the smallest things. Like give a concrete example. So I was actually trying to think of a concrete example. Um, so what I mean is, what do I need to do today? And not just what do I need to do today, what do I need to do right now. So for instance, and I mean, we've talked a lot about how, I mean, how like Tara really helped. And I think I talked about how you really helped when that call came in for this third transplant. But literally what I needed to do was put pants on. I needed to put socks on and I needed to choose one sock and put it on my right foot. And then I needed to choose another sock and put it on my left foot. And then I needed to find my shoes and I needed to put each one on and tie the laces. Like that seems really silly, but my mind was swirling so much that even just bunching those tasks into an operation called get dressed was too big at that point. And that's sort of an extreme example, but it's also a pretty good example of what I'm talking about. Uh, when you're on dialysis, Every day is really not as fun as you want it to be. But if you want to do other things, then you say, okay, what am I going to do today? Focusing on routine and making little goals. Focusing on each individual step as an important, discrete agenda item is a really good strategy because then you are just thinking about one thing, one tiny little thing, and then you go on to the next tiny little thing. And like I sort of said before, it's sort of like one foot in front of the other, one day at a time. And I know those are cliches, but they're actually really real. And it really is a thing that I do to this day. That really is one, one of my main coping strategies. Just really take things down to the smallest step and just do each step at a time and just focus on one thing at a time. For me personally, then, a couple of other things I have done as a musician Sometimes just if I'm really stressed or overwhelmed by a lot of things, I can kind of submerse myself in playing music. The little bits of repetition of practice or, or the actual like really moving parts and emotionalness of playing music can really settle, refocus, all of those good things. And I would say that when I used to fence, that was a whole different thing. Like, basically, have a hobby <laughs> that you're capable of doing that you can focus on and do that um, that is not, you know, your daily stressful life, your daily health stress, that it's something that is yours. Right. We've talked a little bit about this, and your parents brought it up, too, that one of the major things you kind of have to do with chronic illness, because chronic means it's there forever. Yep. Focus on things that are happy. Mm -hmm. You know, I think your mom said, go on family vacations if you can possibly afford to do that. Program the fun things into your life. Yeah. And I feel like we have done that very consciously sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
um, when we first moved to New York, we made this agreement with each other that on average, every other weekend, at least, we were going to get out of the house and do something. Yeah. And this was a promise we made between ourselves that something would be a recreational day, even though you were sick and I was in law school. One weekend, we were going to make sure we went out and either walked in the park, went and saw some kind of cheap play or Broadway show if we could, maybe tried to go see a symphony concert because they had student rush tickets, some kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And we still do that. You know, I think one of the reasons we prioritize being subscribers to the New York Philharmonic is we love the music. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's a thing that we have that's a special date night we always have that is a thing that makes us happy. Right. And, you know, we've got a booklet of tickets every season. Here are your concerts. And so it's part of our year. Right. We're going to get to go have these things. And so part of that is it's one of our luxuries. It's one of our nice things. But I feel like in particular, it's a little bit of our way of saying hell with Alport syndrome. Let's go have fun. <laughs> Let's go be happy. Right. No matter what, we're doing this this weekend. We can't do other things. I can't do work. I can't whatever. We're doing this because it makes us happy. So it's not just happiness that's divorced from your disease. It's right. kind of because of it. And it's also weirdly enhanced because of the conscious effort that goes into being happy. Right. Because it's healing. Yeah, it's sort of because of, in spite of, and enhanced by right. <laughs> all of that. Um, yeah, all of those things are uh, deeply, deeply important. So that's a lot of things. That's a lot of coping strategies I think we've discussed. And I think they're all pretty good. I hope so. Um, and they're, you know, they're pretty much focused on like what works for me, what works for you, what works for us. I hope they're sort of valuable for other people. And so then I think we need to talk about some of the challenges when it comes to coping. And, you know, there's a fair number of them. You know, coping itself is just hard. I, I will say, though, that oddly, this is not what I would have ever predicted, I think, years and years ago. But one of the biggest challenges when it comes to coping is um, other people <laughs> in a certain way. Uh, and that's because um, a lot of reasons. But one of the biggest ones is that you and I are atheists. Yep. <laughs> I, I was raised Jewish and um, realized at a certain point that I was actually an atheist. So I go about my life that way. Uh, and just as I don't go around saying, hi, I'm Ari, I'm a transplant patient, I also generally don't go around saying, hi, I'm Ari, I'm an atheist. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of reasons. And I well, think... People tend to have a strong, not all people, but a lot of people have mm -hmm. a strong negative reaction to that. There are certain stereotypes that you're a bad person or immoral or... Right. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's challenging. You know, sometimes, like as part of coping, and it's like, it's a small, small thing sometimes to just be like, well, actually, I'm a transplant patient. And we've talked a lot about how sometimes when I say that, it invites unintentionally other people to comment. Um, and sometimes I don't want to say I'm a transplant patient or I have a transplant or I have this rare disease because then all of a sudden I am dumping something emotional on somebody else and then I become their caregiver. But also sometimes I'm just saying that because I want to be open with myself and honest with myself and the world that that is who I am. 
it becomes an invitation for people to share as a solution, often to my severe health issues, whatever is important to them for that kind of thing. So this means a lot of things. Uh, I've had several times where people who are, say, vegetarians or vegans be like, oh, well, you must do this. Obviously you do. And if you don't, you should. Why don't you? And the fact is, well, I have a really specific diet laid out by professionals who have research-based <laughs> ideas about what I should eat. Um, I've had several people suggest that perhaps Chinese medicine is the way to go of various types or I don't know various other things. Perhaps I should just try meditation. But by far the most common thing that somebody will say when they have taken my revelation as an invitation is something religious, something that might be as simple and at least seemingly innocuous as, oh, I'm praying for you, or I've put you on the prayer circle at church, or you know, God is looking out. But sometimes it's something that I don't think is intended this way, but really comes across kind of aggressive, which is um, like, well, you know, God has a plan. That one stings so hard. Yeah, or or everything happens for a reason. And I'm a pretty polite person, but I have to ask, what's the reason? You know, what what reason have I had so much serious physical pain and actual hardship and real difficulty, um, emotional and physical and uh, fear for my life at times. What reason is there for that? Um, usually I don't ask. <laughs> well, and you don't want to because I'm trying to be very polite here, but mm -hmm. you don't want to hear all that right. because it becomes somebody's pretty deep religious philosophy. Yeah. And you don't actually want somebody, or I know I don't, and I think you don't, want somebody proselytizing or witnessing to you. Because right. that's a thing when you are somebody who doesn't subscribe to faith that people do to you a lot. Right. I have received as gifts on gift-giving occasions Bibles with passive-aggressive notes written in them. <laughs> like, hey, happy birthday. I'm hoping that you're going to change. Right. Right, exactly. And, and the fact is, I... I don't want to have that conversation right then. I'm in the middle of coping. <laughs> you know, I'm, um, even if, like I think I was trying to hint at, even if I'm just trying to cope by saying essentially to myself, it's okay to say to another person, I have this health problem and let that be okay. When somebody says, ah, but that's my invitation to witness to you or to say that essentially, well, you're being tested to something, something I don't know. Um, right. And I want to give people credit that they don't understand that it's offensive. Oh, yeah. And I really do try to take that in the spirit in which it's meant. Sure. But I really, I hate, I hurt when people imply that you deserve mm -hmm. to be sick or to feel pain or that some magical entity wants that for you. Right. Like, this stuff sucks enough when it's just bad luck. <laughs> right. Right. Having it be somebody's idea of like a divine plan is right. actually not. I know that for some people it is comforting. For me, it's just worse. Mm -hmm. It's so much worse. I don't want to think about that. Especially, I don't want to think about that at the moment at which they're probably telling me, which is, 
a time when things are going badly. Yeah, it's <laughs> really not great. And since we're saying, you know, most people don't mean the negative interpretation. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm not being honest if I don't say there are people who absolutely do. I've had people tell me that from their religious perspective, if bad things are happening to you, it's because you've done bad things, that this is your just punishment. Sure. And that's incredibly hurtful and offensive. Right. Right. I try. <laughs> I I don't know what I've done. <laughs> um, and I, I'd be willing to bet that the people who have said that would be hard-pressed to find whatever that is. But even if this were sort of an economy of sin and reward, um, which I don't think it is, I would argue that it's out of proportion, unless perhaps the, the sin itself is atheism, in which case, well, okay, I, I guess I, I guess that maybe is super bad. Um, it obviously isn't in, in my belief system, but it, I suppose, might be in, in yours. It's, it's a tough thing to talk about here because, like I said, lots of people take revelations about somebody as an invitation for their thing. And, you know, if your thing is vegetarianism or your thing is I'm super into professional wrestling, okay, that's cool. You know, and I'm, I understand the instinct to share something that brings you comfort or that helps you cope with somebody else. Right. They learn about your disease and they want to tell you about the therapeutic benefits of professional wrestling. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Ray Mysterio changed my life. It, it's sort of in the, in the vein of unsolicited advice. You know, I, I rarely go to somebody who is not a doctor and say, Hey, so I have this uh, transplant. What should I do? And that's because that doesn't make any sense. And it's it's also a situation where it really presumes that your thing, whatever it is, maybe it's just a coping thing that you're suggesting. But I've also, like I said, literally had people suggest that what I really need is, like I said, Chinese medicine or um, meditation or just a radically different diet or... Um, things like that, as if that is equivalent to the really serious, pretty well thought out choices that I have affirmatively made to go with Western medicine as a, you know, researched, fact-checked, scientifically based project and process to save my life. That it's not like I made some casual decision because I didn't have any other options, because I wasn't aware that if I just did yoga five days a week, that my kidneys would get better. And I'm being silly about that because I don't think anybody's ever suggested that actually, but I'm being silly on purpose to point out that anything you suggest has that same level of unseriousness to me, because I'm really serious about my disease, because my disease is really, really serious, and it requires serious intervention by serious people who have done serious work based on other people's serious work that is based on other people's serious work. And so it is offensive to me to say, yeah, but you know, maybe there's this other solution. Have you just thought about this? And it's offensive to me to say that the serious medical work and knowledge and research that has gone into my treatment and the development of 
drugs that I take and the development of procedures that I have benefited from is equivalent to or has benefited from good vibes, thoughts, prayers, or some other kind of thing. And it's, I guess it's also hurtful because I, I guess I, I'm saying this twice that it, it presumes that I haven't thought of that. It presumes that, um, maybe just one more thing. And sometimes that's kind of the way it's presented. Like, yeah, I mean, this can't hurt. And the fact is that it does. Cause you're saying that you know better than I do what I need. And I've chosen the people who know better than I do already. I have chosen to go to a really good hospital. And that's not why I chose to live in New York, but because I do live in New York, I go to one of the best hospitals in the world with some amazing doctors. And before I did that, I went to the best hospital that I thought I could find in the city where I was and the best doctors that were available to me. I have chosen that. And, you know, there's almost nothing that I have told people about my medical condition that indicates it's casual or not serious. And I, I think even if I had, even if I was like, oh, I have a cold, prayer's not going to help that either, in my opinion, and in the opinion of the people I have chosen to be my experts. And we are both, I think, putting a lot of effort, even right now in this conversation, to being polite and respectful mm -hmm. and trying not to come off as aggressive and angry. <laughs> right. And whenever somebody says things like, oh, we're praying for Ari when he's in the hospital, or everything happens for a reason, or, oh, thank God he got a transplant. Yeah. I think a lot of people might say to me, oh, well, if you don't believe in that, that doesn't bother you. Right. And it does bother me. Mm -hmm. It might not make sense to you that it bothers me, but it, it does because it's not, it's not observing and respecting the difference. Right. That I don't believe that, and I don't, I don't want to hear that during my hard time. Mm -hmm. Like you said, right now I am coping, and I don't want to have to set aside the emotional energy I'm using for that to also ignore the fact that you're saying something disrespectful and smile and be polite and not say, I don't want that, because that's going to come across as rude. Yeah. In the same way that if somebody who is religious says... I'm going through a really hard time, and I'd really appreciate everybody's prayers and good thoughts and good vibes right now. I respect that. I don't come marching in to say, well, you know, there's not a God and none of this is going to help. <laughs> right. Because that would be so incredibly disrespectful and rude. And mean. And mean, right. Like, that's not, like, they're going through something hard. Now is not the time for mm -hmm. me to get on my soapbox about my own worldview. Right. And I wish people would do that for us. Mm-hmm. That... They would remember, oh, Laura and Ari are different. They don't want this. I will put in the effort to be polite. I will edit my speech instead of expecting them to edit their reaction. Yeah. And I mean, this is the kind of thing that, of course, is part of a much larger issue. And, you know, this isn't <laughs> the atheism podcast, but that, as you mentioned, atheists are generally considered less trustworthy, less moral all of those things because we live in a predominantly religious society. Um, even, even here in America, that is very true. And so not only is there that aspect of privilege of that sort of unthinking, it is an attempt to be compassionate. You know, you're not trying to be a jerk most of the time, like we said, when you say some of those things. 
but because you are inserting your thing into my pain, my tragedy, my um, my trials, my coping, it is hard. And also because in the larger context, we are always um, minorities and often considered lesser, whether directly or more often indirectly, when you'll just see like, oh, here's a little joke about atheists or something. Or, you know, when I was younger, I, like I said, I grew up Jewish and... Um, those are both sort of faith-based, faith category minorities. So they're like not well-known and considered other and really kind of casually othered. Like, well, of course, Christmas. Like, well, no, I didn't grow up with Christmas and like, it seems fun, but it was never my thing. Um, and now as an adult, I have done some Christmas stuff and, oh, some of it's my thing. That's pretty cool, but not the religious part because that is not my part of it. Um, but all the pagan stuff is. But what I'm trying to say is that when a little comment that is meant sort of innocuously as a kindness, like, well, God has a plan, occurs in that little moment, it takes place in this larger context of all those other times when I have been told that I'm wrong and other and lesser. Right. It's It comes with a reminder, like, hey, by the way, we hate you. <laughs> yeah, or you're wrong. Yeah, and again, this isn't the atheism podcast, but believe me, you and I have heard that a lot. Yeah. We've heard that we're wrong every time we walk onto the subway and there's a somebody there handing out books. Right, or pamphlets or yeah, or or um preaching or no, and we've heard we've heard that we're wrong in far more deeply personal ways. <laughs> and so I don't need to hear that I'm wrong or be reminded that you think I'm wrong when when Arya spent the last three nights awake vomiting. Right. I don't have the energy to deal with all that stuff at that point. Yeah, it's um, it's unkind at mm -hmm. the very least. There's there's a, a sort of another aspect of this. I guess we're sort of talking about all these vulnerable moments are moments of coping. Like when you're vulnerable, you're trying to cope and you're trying to cope, which is a thing, place of vulnerability. And um, Right, because I think that's the thing. Your health issue, and probably one of the reasons that we don't, prior to this podcast, we really don't talk about it with people, is that real feeling of vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Here is, honest, the thing I'm most terrified about. Sure. My biggest source of fear, my biggest source of sadness. And so whenever that's going wrong... I am at my most raw. I am at my most feeling unprotected, feeling like the littlest thing could break me. Yeah. And, you know, that sounds dramatic, and it's not true. I've managed to get through things fine and not be broken. Mm -hmm. But you have that feeling like you could push me over by blowing hard. <laughs> yeah, and that's not always apparent to the outside observer. But I can think of a number of times where I've literally been in the hospital and um, a chaplain or equivalent has come in, you know, I, they are doing their job and their job is to, at least ostensibly to like help and provide comfort and, uh, do those things that chaplains do. Right. And that's a thing that a lot of people want. Yeah. Um, when you go into the hospital or if you have ongoing problems like Ari does, they have forms to fill out in addition to the many, many, many forms there are about other things. Yes. But there's a box about like, hey, what's your religious custom or tradition? What do you believe? Mm -hmm. And 
in addition to checking none, I always write a personal handwritten note on the form saying, please don't send anybody. And as far as I can tell, that has never made a difference. People, <laughs> people barge right into your room and sometimes even like barge into your room while they're prepping you for surgery mm. or while you're undressed or there's not a lot of respect for boundaries. Mm-hmm. And I was about to, I was about to say like there's no sacred space which I recognize <laughs> the silliness of but you know, nothing yeah. is protected. Yeah, um, yeah, I can think of several several times where you know there I am in the hospital. I'm either being prepped for surgery or I'm recently out of surgery. I am very physically and emotionally vulnerable. I might be alone and. Somebody just comes on in, and I'm like, well, right at times where I, your wife, am not allowed to come in. Right, and so then I'm like, well, I guess this is happening now. You know, <laughs> I I am not the kind of person that wants to get into a big, lengthy, philosophical, religious debate. I think what I think, you think what you think. Good for you. If you're, if you're not hurting anybody else, cool. I don't think I'm hurting anybody else. Cool. But this is a place where sometimes. You are hurting me. I keep saying you like I'm talking to somebody. Um, but where sometimes people are hurting me. And I think it's probably unintentional most of the time, but it is hurting. And But even though I'm not the kind of person that's like seeking out those conversations, if I were somewhere and I found myself in a conversation with a priest or a rabbi and they said, hey, what's your deal? and I were to say, well, actually, I'm an atheist, I could have a brief interaction in which I say, no, thank you, I'm good. And if I really, really needed to, because that wasn't enough to lend the interaction, you know, explain where I'm at in a, like, polite, calm, reasonable way, and just say, this is my deal, bye. But the fact is that when it comes up in that situation, like, for instance, I was in the hospital in Yakima. I was recovering, as we've discussed, from a rebound reaction that caused me to go blind and very, very ill. It nearly killed you. Right. <laughs> At that point, I was recovering from being nearly dead, and I had tunnel vision, so I could kind of see in front of me and nowhere else, and I was really, really tired and ill-feeling. And a chaplain came in. I think he was a priest, like I said, couldn't see very well, but I'm pretty sure I remember a collar. And I know he was doing his job, I know he was trying to comfort, I know all of those things, but I felt awful and did not want to see this person. I didn't know him, he wasn't going to bring me any comfort or help, and I didn't really want to talk to anybody that wasn't like you or wasn't one of my doctors at that point. And he came in and started talking to me and asking me questions, and I was not in a place where I could do what I would be able to do any other time, which is to say, listen, um, actually, I'm an atheist. No, thank you. And I was able to sort of do that, but it took like 15 minutes instead of two. And so, you know, I'm sure that was maybe awkward for him, but like, I was the patient. I know he has to have gone into other patients' rooms who weren't Catholic or weren't Christian or maybe were non-believers also. Like, it's sort of his job to deal with awkward situations. It's not my responsibility to deal with that when I'm having a serious health problem, or it shouldn't be. But that's one example among many of, like, well, here's just an imposition on me because I'm a sick, vulnerable person. 
when they were preparing you for surgery for your third transplant. So we'd woken up at 5 a.m. in the morning. We'd rushed over there. Mm-hmm. Life was in complete chaos. Yeah. And they were they were prepping you for surgery. So I had to leave the room. Nobody but the patient and doctors allowed. Yes. And I remember I was standing awkwardly in the hallway with Tara clutching your shoes to my chest. And I'd kind of left in a hurry <laughs> so I didn't have them in a good position. And again, we'd signed this form that said, please don't send any religious people. We are yeah. not religious. And the hospital rabbi went charging into your room and started loudly asking you questions about whether or not you were Jewish. Mm-hmm. And then finally, he left your room and came out and started interrogating me. Like, well, the form says no, but his name is Ari, and that's a Jewish name. Is he Jewish? Mm-hmm. And asking me all these questions, I was thinking, <laughs> you know, I don't know if you noticed, but I am trying to get a grip on my husband's shoes. <laughs> it's 6.30, and I woke up at 5, and I do not want to have a conversation with a stranger about Ari's complicated relationship to his Jewish identity. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um. I'm thinking about other stuff. Right. Even if it were any of your business, which is not really. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I kind of don't have anything to add to that. Just that. And I want to agree with what you said, right? When you're in that situation, you don't have that easy, actually, no, thank you. Please leave. Bye-bye. You know, you can't just politely say that and end the interaction. Mm-hmm. You're so thrown. I don't remember what I said to this guy. Mm-hmm. I know that it took minutes and i remember tara saying later like that was so weird you handled it okay (laughs) and like i i could not remember like what i remember is your shoes which is such a thing that i keep talking about because it's really the thing that i remember right um and i barely even remember that because it was one of so many other things but i know that was okay another it's sort of like taking advantage of your vulnerability and maybe not meaning to but intention isn't the point there what what actually matters in that situation is results. Right. You and I deserve to go into this surgery, you going into the surgery and me going into the waiting room without an additional stress or agitation causing factor. Yeah. We as patients and patients' families should get that. Yeah. And because we're talking about coping, I want to put it back in that context, which is that like in that moment, in all of these different example moments that we've given small and big of we're coping and somebody comes in and if i'm trying to be generous they're trying to help cope but mostly unintentionally but sometimes i would argue sometimes actually intentionally they are either inhibiting or just making coping harder and that's not cool of <laughs> it's 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 hard and it it really only requires a tiny bit of thought like if it says on the form no thank you maybe no thank you is the answer and like that's i think that's the reason we're talking about that as a a pretty egregious example is that all these other person-to-person interactions you don't come with a form before you talk to me i would like to fill out the following thing doesn't happen and in this case and in several other cases in the hospital we have literally said literally this literally this and it has been ignored which makes you wonder why they have that on the form anyway. You know, it, it makes it, it also then makes you concerned. Like, well, I said a lot of things on that form that were really important. Some of them are supposed to be legally binding about, like, if I happen to die, are you going to respect that? Because this other thing you seem to treat really casually. Right. Like, the medications that he's allergic to are, are serious, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's a long form. You know, this, this reminds me, though, of sort of a 
a broader thing because we talked about vulnerability and people kind of taking that vulnerability as an opportunity. Um, and again, like intentionally or maybe unintentionally sort of taking advantage of vulnerability. And I truly may be alone in this. I don't know. But as we have talked about a lot, there are many, many, many times where I've had some kind of procedure or medical event in my life. And a fair number of those times, people that I know have reached out. And I mean, I like it when people reach out. I like it when, you know, uh, when I hear from people that I care about and that I'm close with that say like, hey, everything's okay. You okay? You know, come see me in the hospital, all that stuff. That's that's really nice and it's really important to my recovery and all of those things. But there are other times where, you know, sometimes a relationship hasn't worked out. I'm talking friend relationships here, usually. You know, it, it hasn't worked out for whatever reason. We have maybe on the mildest end just lost touch, but maybe we've had some kind of issue and we didn't leave on amazing terms. Or there was some other conflict or argument or disagreement between me and somebody else. And these aren't like super common in my life, but they have happened. And what's been, I guess, unfortunate and sometimes really frustrating or even upsetting is that sometimes when I've had a medical event, that has been the time that somebody that I had kind of a, a negative point in our relationship with has taking that opportunity to be like, hey, I know we left things on kind of a bad note, but I just wanted to say, hope you feel better, or hope that surgery goes well, or I heard you're having a bad time. And I super get that instinct. That is like baked in culturally. There's like movies about deathbed getting togethers and reconciliation. Reconciliation is the word I meant. Yes. Like there's all kinds of things like that. And I... I'm really not into that, and I may be completely alone, but I'm really, really not into that because what it does is it takes a place where, or a time when I am really emotionally vulnerable and stressed, and it says like, hey, remember this other bad thing? Could you deal with that now? And I know that most of those people, maybe all those people, what they really want is just to say like, even with all the bad stuff, like we cared about each other once, we still could care about each other, you're a cool dude you know, something positive. But because we aren't quite cool with each other in some way at the moment when they send that message, it has this way of being, again, I guess just to me maybe, of being like, here's this bad thing. Remember this bad thing? Deal with me now. And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. Because this is me observing something about you. When you're in a time of medical crisis or things aren't going well, one of the first things that seems to be affected is your thinking. Yeah. Right? You start being less and less linear. You start forgetting things or words more. Mm -hmm. And we've talked a lot about that in the past, where you get foggy mentally. Yes. And so I think that one of the ways in which negative things coming at that point or people who remind you of negative things stress you out is you kind of don't have the brain power to focus <laughs> on complicated feelings. Right. Or just don't have the emotional energy. Because so much of it is going towards dealing with the actual serious event that is happening. And I'm going to say something that sounds very, very cynical, and I don't usually think of it this way. But what it feels like is 
in some moments, what it feels like is that somebody is trying to take advantage of or leverage my vulnerability to fix something that wasn't fixed or mended before. It's like, well, I didn't call you for a month or two months or a year, but now that you're sick, maybe we could just wrap this up because I sent a card. And like I said, that's an extremely cynical viewpoint sitting here right now. I don't feel like that about any of those situations. But in the moment, because I am so stressed and it, I can't process things as well, like you just said, that is what it can feel like. It can feel really, really upsetting. Like, why are you doing this now? You know, you could have done it a week ago. You've had all these opportunities to do it when it wasn't like high stakes, when like maybe I could die. It's usually not that high stakes, but a couple times that it, it, it feels crass. Right. And I, I think maybe if people are listening to the podcast, they'll think, wow, it sounds like he's describing like a really specific situation. And the thing is, this has actually happened many times. And, you know, it's not that, like, you have a lot of negative dangling relationships. It's no. just that this is a thing that the thing that people tend to do, right? So, like, oh, hey, we haven't spoken since high school. I ghosted on you. Now I want to make that better. Like, th that kind of thing has happened. Or, right. or things where it was a little bit worse. But this is just an event that it almost happens every time you're in the hospital. <laughs> and I think that the people doing it don't know that, right? Like... Oh, I'm going to do this thing. I bet nobody's done that. Yeah, I, I do kind of get the instinct, like I said. But yeah, and I, I want to emphasize too, like it sounds like I'm talking about some specific thing. And most of these are pretty mild, low grade things, like you said, like, well, we were friends in high school, but then we ended up kind of not talking anymore for some reason. And I'd really like to fix that now, 20 years later that I heard you're in the hospital and like, yeah, 20 years. Like, just just wait for him to get out and right. maybe you can like chat on Facebook or something. You know, because I'd be, I'd usually be up for that. That'd be great. But not right now when I'm dealing with a transplant. Not right now when I've been throwing up for three days and I might be about to go in the hospital. Not right now when whatever it is, that's not the time for your thing. That it feels like you're making my thing about you. Like, listen, I know you're going through a time, but could we talk about us? No, this is, no, we cannot. Sorry. We, that is not, not the time. Um, I cannot cope with that. <laughs> you are being an anti-coping person, and I cannot I cannot do that. Well, I think what we're saying is that one of the most important, helpful things yeah. in coping is other people being there for you. Yeah. And one of the hardest things to cope with is other people being there with you. It, it really is, you know. And, and I feel that, and I know everybody's trying to do the right thing, and sometimes I get the sense from some of the letters we get that... People would love, and actually I think you and I would love to, too, if this mm -hmm. podcast could be, hey, if you've got a sick person in your life, here's the exact set of things <laughs> that you <laughs> should do that would be the most helpful, mm -hmm. right? Do do this, don't do that, we can tell you exactly. Right. And it's not like this easy organized set of lists that we can give anybody. Yeah. It's this weird soup of sometimes this is helpful and sometimes it's the worst thing in the world. <laughs> and, you know, just because... We're on one side of that more often, right? You're the sick person mm -hmm. and they're the friend trying to figure it out. You know, I've been the friend to a person going through awful stuff and felt just as at sea, just as like, oh, crap, what do I do to be helpful? Right. I don't want to do the wrong thing. Right. Because everybody comes with their own manual, but they don't always know what it says. Yeah, I can probably give like a decent list of do's and don'ts for me, 
And I think that there are parts in this podcast, not just this episode where I've done so, but my list isn't everybody else's list. And that's just true for everybody about everything. It's why we are definitely a discussion and an autobiographical podcast <laughs> rather than an advice podcast. Yeah. Because we're not qualified to give medical advice and any situational or emotional advice we'd give is specific. Yeah. You I, know, I hope that us talking about it is generally helpful, but... Right. I, I do think, though, that the if I were to give general advice, and this would be the general advice I would give, try to know the person and think about the person that you're trying to help. Try to think about what they would want, not what you would want, but what they would want, and try to really read their situation. Some people need everybody there. Some people want nobody there. Some people say they want nobody there, but they actually do need people there. And yes, that's tricky. <laughs> yes, that's unfair, and that's difficult, but... Try to do what the person wants and needs. And it's going to be hard when you're trying to help somebody cope because coping is difficult. And you can't even always just say, hey, what do you need? Because sometimes people don't know. But communicating and listening and listening with more than just ears is a really important, important task if you want to uh, be there for someone. And I think... With that, it's time to transition into the last question of the episode. Okay. All right. How are you feeling this week? Better. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about how I've been, oh, I've been sick, I've been sick, I've been sick. I'm doing better. You know, not 100%, a little stuffed up, but better. Yeah, better. If you have questions for us, you can send them to kidneycast at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. If you want to catch up with us on Facebook or Twitter, facebook.com slash kidneycast, Twitter at kidneycast. Also, all of our episodes are available on iTunes and Stitcher, and you can find everything on my website with show notes at lauramorris.com, L-A-R-R-A-M-O-R-R-I-S.com. Ari, thank you so much for recording with me this week. Yeah, thank you. And thank you to everybody for listening. 